Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This week, we are continuing our discussion from the past couple of weeks. We've talked about the different roles in dysfunctional families. Last week, we really dove into the scapegoat role. And this week, we are talking about the flip side of that coin on what it means to be the golden child, how that affects you now in adulthood, and some steps that you can take to heal We're also going to be peeling back the layers of why this dynamic between the scapegoat and the golden child is so prevalent, at least from my point of view, in high demand Christian families. And I'm really excited to dive into all of this, help us have some greater understanding for the roles that we might play in our families, how our families are structured, because the more awareness we have of how things are laid out, the more power we have to make the changes that would be healthy for us. We can't change something we're not aware of. And so these podcasts are really about creating awareness and helping us get curious. I've had some of you reach out and ask questions like, I identify with a lot of the traits of certain roles, but I don't know that that was my role. It is okay. You don't have to label yourself. So if in last week's podcast episode, you found yourself saying, I struggle with a lot of the things that a scapegoat would struggle with, get curious with it. Maybe you were scapegoated. Maybe there were times where you were scapegoated, but maybe you weren't the family scapegoat, but maybe you still have some of those feelings like you're responsible for everything that goes wrong, or maybe you feel like, you know, you're to blame. So it's just things to get curious with. I want you to remember you are the authority in your own life. So these podcast episodes aren't here to tell you what to do with your life. They're here to bring awareness, to help you get curious, to see what you identify with and what you don't, so that you can begin to ask yourself questions about what happened in your childhood and how does it affect you now in adulthood and what do you want to do about it? And there are no right and wrong answers. It's whatever works for you. I also had several of you reach out and say, I'm having a really hard time with these podcasts because I'm identifying traits, but I have a really hard time labeling my childhood home as dysfunctional because I had an amazing childhood. I want you to know it is possible to have both had an amazing childhood and have some unhealthy dynamics in your family. It does not have to be either or. That is a binary way of thinking, of believing my family had to be all good or my family had to be all bad. I had an amazing childhood. And maybe I'm not talking about that as much as I should be in these podcast episodes. I had an incredible childhood with parents who really did love me and tried their best to be there for me and really did sacrifice a lot to make sure that I had a childhood that was better than theirs. And at the same time, because my parents both had tumultuous childhoods, had their own childhood wounds, those came into our family dynamic and it affected my life. 
So the same thing may have happened to you. You may have had parents that were incredible people that showed up for you the majority of the time. I would say my parents were incredible people 80, 90% of the time. And yet that 10 or 20%, because we weren't allowed to talk about emotions, we didn't have those tools in our toolbox, it became trauma. It became things that affected the rest of my life. It affected my self-worth. It affected my ability to navigate relationships. And it may be the same for you too. So do understand that if you're listening to these podcast episodes and going, oh, I think there was a golden child in my family. And uh, I think there was a scapegoat and I did take on the hero role or I was the mascot or I was the surrogate parent, whatever it is that you identify with. Yes, that points to there being some dysfunction in the home, probably some emotional immaturity, and that doesn't necessarily mean that your family was bad, okay? Even if there was occasionally some verbal or mental or emotional abuse in the home, your parents may not have done it on purpose. That doesn't mean that they're bad people. It means that they were wounded people and they passed on hurt to you from their own wounds, okay? So often what happens in our homes is subconscious. Most of us as people, if we are not sociopaths, want to love and care for each other, okay? So unless your parent was a sociopath, meaning they delighted in hurting other people and they had no feelings of remorse about it, they didn't have empathy for other people, like did not care if other people got hurt. If you have a parent like that, even then, there's a little bit of leeway in understanding they had a mental illness that did not allow them to connect with other people. And it allows you to release the responsibility or feeling like you're not worthy. And that's why your parent treated you that way. But most of our parents were wounded as children because their parents didn't have tools either. So they were wounded as children because their parents did the best they could, left our parents with the tools that they had. Our parents did the best they could. And unfortunately, it means that they passed on some of those wounds to us. And I already know some of you have had some long conversations with me this past week about what does that mean for me? If I'm healing, does that mean that I'm passing on wounds to my children? Yes, you may be. But when we get rid of that binary thinking, we understand that we can continue to heal with our kids. As we learn tools, we can give those tools to our kids so that they can heal their trauma quicker. And as we heal ourselves, we're more open to having conversations with our kids about their hurt, owning our part, and being willing to continue to create healthy dynamics with our kids, not just now while they're living with us, but into the future, into their adulthood. I can't tell you how often I talk with my kids and say, hey, I am learning with you. That means I'm not going to get everything right. And I'm healing my own trauma as I'm trying to navigate parenting you. I'm going to accidentally pass things on. If you feel hurt, scared, afraid, angry, betrayed, like your boundaries have been crossed, please come talk to me so that I can learn and so that you can heal and we can create a healthier relationship dynamic together. You can do that with your kids. 
we have this mistaken idea that we have to have it all figured out so that then we can pass on a perfect childhood to our children. And it's just not possible. I think even if we didn't have generational trauma, even if we didn't have religious trauma, it wouldn't be possible to pass those things on to our kids because we've never had kids before. We're having to learn how to be parents and we're having to learn how to parent children who have all different kinds of personalities and needs and desires and talents and interests. It's a lot. We're learning as we go, which means we're going to make mistakes. What creates trauma is when those mistakes are made and we can't talk about them. And so we have to stuff them and we have to just swallow them and and they metastasize inside of our body. When we're able to talk about it, when the people who hurt us are accountable, when we know that our experience matters and that someone wants to hear it and they want to sit with us with it and they want to figure it out with us, it's so much less likely to create trauma. I want us to understand, I know I've gone off on a tangent here, but I want us to understand that we don't have to be perfect and pass on a perfect childhood experience to our children to raise healthy children. Healthy children also need the skills of resiliency, of learning to understand when their boundaries have been crossed and when they've been harmed and to be able to speak that and to have conflict resolution. All of that is part of healthy adulthood. It's not the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of mistakes that makes a healthy adult. It's the ability to speak about it and work through it and to know that people love us enough to sit in the discomfort with us as we figure this out together. We will talk more about this in a later podcast because it is so important. But just know it is possible for you to have had a largely wonderful childhood and have experienced some harm. And really what led to childhood trauma was the inability to talk about it and work through it because your parents just may not have had the tools and they may not have had the emotional intelligence, which is a tool set of its own in order to teach you how to identify your emotions so you could speak about them. So just know we have new tools and we're discovering new tools all the time. That was actually something someone brought up in the group call on the Emancipate Yourself app on Monday was that we still don't have all the tools. We're learning new tools all the time. Science is progressing to a point where we understand the human brain. We understand human development better now than we ever have before. And we're going to know more in six months and in a year and in five years and in 10 years than we know right now. So we do the best with the tools we have. And then as we learn more, we do better. We continue to learn and grow. So let's let go of the binary thinking here where we feel like it has to be perfectly good or it's all bad. Okay. That dynamic doesn't serve anyone. It doesn't allow us to understand our childhoods better. It doesn't allow us to give ourselves compassion and it doesn't allow us to move forward as parents and as people creating relationships with others with this healthy sense of self-trust. We have to be able to hold ourselves with compassion and accountability in order to be able to move forward. And that's what growth mindset is all about. So I hope that answered some of your questions from this past week because there was a lot of fear around what this means about your family 
if you're noticing some of these patterns. This just means that your family might not have had some of the tools. It might mean that there was some emotional immaturity. This is more to help you kind of understand where you're coming from and your patterns so that you can begin to release those patterns. It's not about defining you. It's not about labeling you. It's definitely not about labeling your family. Take what works, leave what doesn't. Remember, you are your own authority. And please, before I forget, if you want to be part of these kinds of conversations where we're talking voice to voice about what's happening on the podcast, if you want courses that walk you through reconnecting with your emotions and becoming more emotionally intelligent, if you want guidance, if you want support both in a community and some one-to-one coaching to help you see where maybe some of these childhood patterns might still be showing up in your life and how you can work through them, please go over to the Emancipate Yourself app. We have a weekly live group call on Mondays at 11 o'clock Mountain Time, and I help people one-to-one identify what's going on in their life. I ask curiosity questions and you come up with your own solutions. We work together to help you figure out what feels best for you and how you want to move forward. So please go do that. There are two courses over there. I'm in the middle of releasing a third course and the people in the community, in the group are amazing people who have begun to support and hold people as they're growing It is an incredible resource, and I would love for you to utilize it. So the first seven days are free. So you can join us for a call on Monday for free and try it on and see how it works. Sort through the courses, see if they're helpful. We would love to have you there. So please head on over, check out the Emancipate Yourself app. You can either find it in the show notes, click that link. It'll take you straight to the web app. You can find it either in the Google Play Store or in the Apple App Store, and you'll have support in your pocket wherever you go. I can't recommend it enough. And those who are involved are shaping the courses that I will be creating for the rest of the year. The next courses that we're creating over the summer and into the fall are going to have to do with relationships and creating healthy relationships, which is going to help with parenting. It's going to help you connect with your partners and your parents all in healthier ways. And all of this is coming from that background of deconstructing high demand religion. So it's very, very specialized. Would love to have you there. All right. Without further ado, let us hop in and let's talk about what it means to be the golden child. So the golden child is the child tasked with upholding the family's perfect image and reputation. This is the child that all of the success of the family is placed on their shoulders. They're responsible for making the family and especially the parents look good by being successful in the ways that are deemed valuable to the family system. And that is really important. So let's talk about what that means. If your family values academics, for instance, and academics come really easily to you, you may be held up as a golden child. You get the good grades, you get the scholarships, you're the person that's in the National Honor Society, you're the one that makes your family look really intelligent and smart. And so you may be held up as the golden child because you uphold 
the family value, which is intelligence or education or whatever it is that your family values. Now, if your family values popularity or beauty, if you're the head cheerleader or the football captain or you're a model or you are somebody that just is class favorite or you're the person that everybody knows at school and everybody loves and admires or fears and admires and everybody wants to be like, you may be the golden child in your family, because that is what your family values. They value being beautiful. They value being popular. They value being in those positions that are admired and coveted. That might put you in the golden child position. Often for those of us in high demand religion, it could be some of those, but it's often how well we uphold religious values as well. Were you a beautiful girl who also dressed modestly? Were you the clean-cut guy that was well-spoken? Were you successful academically, but also really religious and pious? The better we made not only our family systems look, but the better we made our high-demand religion look, often we can be put into that golden child position. Because especially in high-demand religions, Remember, your parents are competing. In a high-demand religion, they're competing for accolades, for value, for acceptance, for lovability, for worthiness. It's not like their competition is over, that that only happens in childhood. When we're in high-demand systems, high-demand systems act like narcissistic families. There is an authority that deems who makes the system look good And who makes the system look bad? So there are scapegoated people or groups of people, and there are golden groups of people or individuals within that system. And so that dynamic within high demand religion can cause our parents to bring that dynamic into the home, because if their children are making the high demand religion look good, it makes them look good and Not only are you the golden child, but they are also the golden child or one of the golden people in that system. In high demand religions, often how it works is you either have a very charismatic authoritarian leader who has narcissistic tendencies, or you have a covert narcissist that hides under piety that holds God up as an overt narcissist. So if you were in a high demand religion where you had a charismatic leader that was obviously narcissistic, like they were very grandiose, wanted everyone to celebrate them, give them all the glory. This happens like in the Moonies cult where they actually worship Sun Young Moon, I think is his name. So they actually worship him. They see him as an embodiment of Christ or whoever it is, they see him as the embodiment of God. And so that would be an overt narcissistic leader that everybody bows down to. And they're all trying to gain favor with that leader. A covert narcissistic leader in high demand religion, however, is going to have a much more humble appearance. They're going to be much more pious looking. They're going to look like they're devoted to God, but because they speak for God, they get to basically scapegoat God in some ways for their narcissistic tendencies. 
So God becomes this very narcissistic, authoritarian, and controlling figure who has very exacting demands of what is right and good and what gets praised and very exacting demands of what makes you evil or bad and what gets you kicked out of the group. And so the covert leader can, the covert narcissistic leader can basically say, like, this isn't me. I'm just obeying. I'm the humble servant. This is God speaking. Regardless, if you were raised in a high demand religion, you had one of those two dynamics likely. And this creates the same thing that happens in a narcissistic or dysfunctional family where there is a golden child pitted against a scapegoat. And the two keep each other in line. So the golden child is held up to the scapegoat to say, this is who you should be. These are the qualities you're supposed to embody if you want my praise, if you want my love. And so the scapegoat's constantly trying to be that person and that gives the narcissist supply. And in this case, it gives the high demand leader supply, whether it's on behalf of God or on behalf of themselves. Because you have all of these scapegoated people striving really hard to make it into that golden place. Or you have golden children who are all doing the right things and making the organization look really good. And the scapegoat holds them in check. Because basically what's being said is, if you don't do what I tell you to, you will be like these people. You will be hated. You will be shunned. You will be blamed for everything. And as we learned last week, it's really damaging whenever you're the scapegoat. We instinctively know that that is really emotionally damaging and we try to avoid it at all costs. So this dynamic continues to bring the narcissist supply. Now, unfortunately, what happens is because we're often taught to structure our families after this dynamic We're taught that this is like the godly way to do things. This is how God's family is set up with these golden children and scapegoats. Unfortunately, what happens more than we would like it to happen is these dynamics are brought into our homes and it's replayed in our family systems where we have scapegoats and we have golden children. And whether your parents have narcissistic personality disorder, which does include some sociopathic traits or they simply have narcissistic traits and they're just doing their best to get their own needs met and they're operating from their wounds, it can create that same sort of dysfunction as your parents are trying to do things the right way. They're trying so hard to make sure that you avoid eternal punishment from a narcissistic God or a narcissistic leader and that you're taken care of because they love you and also so that they're taken care of So that fear and that shame really drive a lot of dysfunction when families are operating underneath the umbrella of high demand religion that utilizes these kind of dynamics that, you know, pit one person against another and value people that make the organization look good and devalue people that call out abuse or that refuse to completely conform. Now, Going back to the golden child, golden children are often expected to be good at everything because if you're holding the success of the family or the system on your shoulders, you have to make the system look good at all times. So this means you have to be good at whatever you try. 
What this does is the things that we do try, we have a tendency to gravitate to things that we're already naturally good at. And we are really competitive in those areas. So we become super competitive. We want to be the best. And we feel like a failure if we're not the best. If anyone's better than us, if we come in second place, if we're not the valedictorian, we're the salutatorian, if you know any of those things, we feel like a failure. This also keeps us from trying things that we might not necessarily be good at, but we're interested in. So if we're a little bit clumsy or we stumble over our own two feet, but we're really interested in dancing, we might not try that because we're not sure that we can be the best at that. So we don't try things that feel expansive to us if we're not sure that we can't be the best at it. So we have a tendency to gravitate only to things that we know we'll be really good at. And we dread making mistakes because mistakes equal failure. If we make a mistake because we are in a system that is perfectionistic, that is very binary, when we make a mistake, remember, it's either all good or it's all bad. Well, a mistake doesn't make the family look good. It makes the family look bad. We might get scapegoated for our mistakes or we might get berated for our mistakes or just there might be a silent treatment and no one says anything about our mistakes. And so we don't get to work through them and it feels awful. So we might be emotionally shunned or just kind of ignored when we make mistakes and we lose that connection. So we have a tendency to really strive not to make mistakes and to be as perfect as possible. Another thing that we often feel whenever we're the golden child is we feel highly responsible to meet the aspirations of our parents. If our parents have chosen a life for us, we feel responsible to live that life, to make them happy and to please them. This might include, especially when our parents had aspirations for themselves, but didn't get to meet those aspirations for one reason or another. So if your parents, for instance, got pregnant with you before they finished college, you might feel a real drive to finish college because your parents sacrificed their college career in order to give birth to you. Or if, you know, your parent had an injury while they were playing a sport and they didn't get to progress all the way up to the level that they wanted to progress to as the golden child, you might feel responsible to hit those aspirations for them so that they can feel complete. You feel like an extension of your parent. You are the one that is achieving things on their behalf or on both of your behalves. You're achieving things to get your needs met, but you also have a sense that it's meeting your parents' needs as well. And that because it's meeting their needs, they're going to shower you with love and praise and affection and all the things that we need as children in order to feel secure and to feel good about ourselves. Now, like we talked about last week, if you are really good at upholding your parents' values, making them look good, and really good at performing and making the family look really functional and successful, you're going to be held up as the golden child. But if for whatever reason you are unable to keep holding that up or you become unwilling to keep holding that up or at least selling the story that everything is wonderful and fine in your family 
and that you guys are a highly successful functional family. If you start speaking up about family dynamics or you quit doing what's expected of you, you can easily become scapegoated. So that's what we were talking about earlier, where often golden children and scapegoats, they're two sides of the same coin and they're used against each other. So they're kind of pitted against each other in a way that divides the scapegoat from the golden child so that they both give the narcissistic parent or the narcissistic leader supply. And remember, supply is like attention, adoration, your time, your energy. You know, they want you to continue to try to get their love and affection. And it feels really good to be the center of attention. And so by pitting you against each other, what it does is it keeps you both focused on each other and not like the dysfunction that's coming from above you. And it keeps you kind of like fighting with each other for the love and attention of the dysfunctional parent or the dysfunctional leader in the system. And so you don't ever really see the dysfunction. You don't ever really see the abuse because you're both like fighting against each other for the scraps of love and attention that are left. Okay. So why is there a golden child? Now, anytime there is a golden child or a scapegoat or both, what is going on is you have a leader or a parent or a caregiver that is incapable of dealing with emotional wounds inside of themselves. They often have insecurity. They often feel not worthy enough. They have some deep wounds about their ability to be loved and valued for who they are. And so because of this, the scapegoat holds all of what they consider their undesirable traits. They see something in the scapegoat that either mirrors back to them their own undesirable traits. So maybe the scapegoat like voices the abuse that's going on and it makes them look at their undesirable traits. Or the scapegoat has some of the same traits as the parent. Maybe they're quiet and the parent was scapegoated themselves for being quiet. The quiet child reminds them of their own shame that they endured as a child, and they may scapegoat the child for being just like them. Or the scapegoated child may be the opposite of them. So they might have some traits that make the parent feel insecure about themselves or aware of places where they feel like they are deficient. And so they scapegoat the child to help themselves feel better. It's a very objective selection process that is entirely determined by the parent. But the same is true for the golden child. It is not about the golden child. It is about how the parent or the leader feels about themselves. So they see something in the golden child that they feel like reflects well on them. And so they make that child the golden child. Or that child is really good at keeping secrets or meeting the narcissistic parent's needs or just there's a number of reasons. Or they don't make the parent feel self-conscious. Like there's so many different reasons why a golden child is put in the position they are and why, why a scapegoat is put in the position they are. But neither of them have to do with who each of these children are. They have to do with who the parent is or who the leader is. Everything is a mirror of how the parent feels about themselves. So there is a golden child for the same reason there's a scapegoat. The golden child is the shield, basically. They're the mask that the family wears of, see, we're functional. 
We're successful. We're happy. Look how amazing this child is. I produced this child. I parented this child. Therefore, this child is evidence that I am amazing too. This child carries the burden of the parent's self-worth. This child carries the burden of the collective system's self-worth. So if you're a golden child in a high demand system, you carry the burden for, see, this is a good church. See, we do good things in the world. See, this person is evidence that this is a good place to be. And the scapegoated ones, they carry all of the burden for anything bad that happens in the system. So they can be like, it wasn't us. I'm not a bad parent. This child's just difficult. We're not a bad church system. We're not a bad religious system. That person's just a bad apple. It's crazy how these systems work, but a golden child and a scapegoat, they're there so that the parent doesn't have to take personal responsibility so that they don't have to look at themselves. So they don't have to look at their pain. They don't have to look at their wounds. They don't have to look at their narcissistic traits. They don't have to look at the ways that they might be causing people harm. They can deflect everything outside of themselves and continue to remain disembodied from their emotions, disembodied from their wounds, and not have to take responsibility for their life. That's really what being the golden child is all about. Also, while we're here, I want to stop really quick and say that it is absolutely possible for there to be more than one golden child in a family. And here are some of the different scenarios. So you may have a parent that has superhuman expectations for what the ideal human looks like. They may have aspirations athletically, academically, um, with looks and popularity, with religion. And there might not be one child that fulfills all of those needs. So you might have a child that is the golden child in academics, but maybe scapegoated for religion or athleticism or their looks. You may have a child that is the golden child for athletics or for religion, but scapegoated in the other areas where they're seen as deficient. And so all of the children potentially can have golden children roles where they excel, but maybe scapegoated against other children in the family that excel in areas where they have weaknesses. Instead of everyone just feeling like, oh, these are my strengths and I add something to the family and this is amazing. Everyone feels like I have strengths, but I really let the family down in all of these other ways. I'm not good enough. And you'll know that there has been a lot of scapegoating in the family because everyone feels not quite good enough. So if all of your siblings have this sort of not quite good enough feeling, there's insecurity there, and you'll know that there's insecurity there because there's a lot of judgment. So if there's a lot of judgment, a lot of sibling rivalry, a lot of competing for your parents' attention, everyone has insecurities, everyone is vying to feel worthy. And chances are there was quite a bit of scapegoating going around, not just with one person, but with several different people. And again, remember, this doesn't mean that your family is bad. It just means that you may have had some dysfunctional dynamics going on in your family because you didn't have the tools to do something different. Just understand if you're noticing I feel a lot of rivalry with my sibling, or I feel a lot of competition for mom and dad's attention. 
there was likely some dysfunctional family dynamics going on where you were accidentally or purposely pitted against one another for your parents' attention. Another possibility for multiple golden children is when you have two narcissistic parents. And so one might choose a golden child dependent on their values and scapegoat the children that don't meet their values, while the other parent chooses a different golden child that meets their values, but scapegoats the other ones that are different from them. And actually, these dynamics show up in the Bible. So I want to kind of dig into that for just a minute. We're going to talk about how this golden child scapegoat dynamic, how it plays out in Christian theology, as well as in Mormon theology. Now, I will say this about Christian theology. There is a wide spectrum of how the Bible is interpreted. You all know this. I'm aware that there are healthier interpretations of some of these scriptures, but I'm going to take it all the way to the far end. And we're going to talk about this as if these are narcissistic systems or highly dysfunctional family systems. And we're going to look at how this plays out. So one of the first ones I want to dig into is actually going to come straight from Mormon theology, because this is different from Christian theology. There are some Christian sects, I think, that believe sort of this way, but Let's dig into Mormon theology really quick. We're going to get into the Jesus-Satan dynamic and um, talk about how that plays out really quick, because I think it's really helpful to look at some of the stories that were held up as ideal to see this dynamic and why it would be so tempting or so easy to adopt this pattern in our own families. I think it allows us to give our parents some compassion, our grandparents some compassion, ourselves some compassion, and also begin to unwind these things. In Mormon theology, which I know is very different from Christian theology, but you guys can just like sit with me for a bit. In Mormon theology, we have God the Father, And Jesus is not the same as God the Father. They are two separate and distinct beings. So God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are three separate distinct beings that are united in purpose. So we don't do the Trinity. We believe in, like, you know, Mormons believe in three separate beings. So you had God the Father. You had Jesus Christ, his son, his beloved son. Already you're getting some of those golden child vibes. But then you had Lucifer, the son of the morning or the star of the morning, depending on how you translate the Bible. And so in Mormon theology, we're taught that Lucifer was also the son of God. So Lucifer and Jesus are brothers in Mormon theology. I know it's blowing your mind for some of my Christian listeners. I get that. But stick with me, okay? get past the, oh my gosh, this is blasphemy thing. Cause I know for some of you, like that's still stuck in there, but it's okay. Just another way to interpret scriptures. So these two are brothers. So we have the perfect opportunity to look at the golden child and the scapegoat kind of triangle that goes on here in Mormon theology. There was a council in heaven before we came to earth where all of the souls that would ever come to earth came to this grand council to talk about the plan of what was going to happen here on earth and how we were going to get back to God. I know, I know it's blowing your mind for Mormon people. They're like, yeah, of course. But for my Christian friends, I know like this has blown my family's mind for years, my friends in high school for years. So if your mind is being blown, that's okay. Just stick with me. 
we can do some self-care afterwards or whatever, but like, just stick with me. So grand council in heaven, all the souls are there. You've got Jesus and Lucifer, and both of them are golden children. Both of them are incredibly obedient. They are God's favorite. They're some of the firstborn. They're God's favorites. But God basically comes up with this plan and says, so I'm going to let you go down and learn from your life experience. But there's a catch. You're going to go down there. And because of the human condition, you're going to be fallen, which means you're going to make mistakes, which means that you're not going to be worthy to come back to my presence as you are, because you're going to kind of, you know, be tainted by the flesh. You're going to do things that will not make it possible for you to come back to where I live. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send Jesus down there and he's going to die for your sins. He's going to take on all of the suffering and pain. He's going to, you know, atone for all of that. We're going to kill him. He's going to resurrect. That'll break the bonds of death. And that will also wipe away your sins if you do what I say. So you've got this kind of plan where already there's this dynamic of you have to completely obey me in order to come back to me, in order for me to love and accept you. Okay. And Satan essentially says, um, I have another plan. How about we go down and I make sure that everybody comes back. We won't lose anybody. But if I do that, then I want the glory. Like I I want praise and accolades for that. And God says, no, that's absolutely not okay. Which is such a narcissistic response to be like, what share glory with you? Absolutely not all the glory for me. And so in that moment, Satan falls. He quits being Lucifer. He is cast out. He becomes Satan. He's thrust down um, to earth where he will torment the souls of men, make it even more likely that, you know, humans will make mistakes. And Jesus says, yeah, not my will, but thine be done, which is a total golden child response. So Satan calls out, ah, so this is kind of a flawed plan. We're going to lose a lot of people. I am worried about that. And so I have another plan where I'm going to make everybody come back. Like I'm going to go in and micromanage people and make sure that they come back. And, but if I'm going to do all that work, I want the glory. He gets scapegoated because he's not with the program and he's not with the whole idea of giving God narcissistic supply. But Jesus says, sure, I'll go down and I will, you know, I won't do my will. I won't worry about myself. I am just here to serve you and do your will. And so Jesus gets set on the right hand of God. They carry through with the plan and Satan is down here tempting everyone. Now, I want you to think about how that shows up today. Not today, Satan. When we do something wrong, when we have feelings that we feel like are wrong, when we're angry, when we feel like our boundaries have been crossed, when we're upset, when we feel grief, when we feel taken advantage of, who do we blame that on? Satan? Can I tell you how many times since I've left the church that I've had people say, you know, I just feel like Satan's working on you. Satan gets scapegoated for my choices. 
Or I've heard other people say, you know, I just feel like Satan's working on me. I'm having a really hard time loving you or accepting you or being around you. Satan gets scapegoated for their difficult feelings they need to work on. And what does that do when we scapegoat Satan? When we scapegoat Satan for our bad choices, for our difficult feelings, for the things we don't want to have to think about, we do exactly what the narcissist does. We don't have to look at ourselves. We don't have to work through our problems. We don't have to be aware of where we're triggered and where our wounds are. We can just offload all of those negative feelings. That's not me. I'm not the one that's angry. I'm not the one that feels grief or sadness or resentment. I'm not the person that made me go out and drink last night. I'm not the person that made me talk about you behind your back. I'm not the person that didn't want to come to church this morning. That was all Satan. And so we offload that on Satan. We thought stop any sort of growth we want to do inside of us. We don't get curious with ourselves anymore because it wasn't us. It was Satan. It is a classic scapegoating technique. And when something good happens, we give all that glory either to Jesus or to God. And so because of the theology, we carry out that narcissistic system inside of ourselves that keeps us unaware of our own wounds, unaware of our own hurt, our own wants, our own needs, our own feelings. And it serves this very dysfunctional system. It makes sense when we've been raised in that kind of atmosphere that we would bring that same dysfunction to our families. It makes sense that our parents brought that same dysfunction to our families. Now, we have lots of other examples of the scapegoat and the golden child in the Bible. I mean, you've got Jacob and Esau, for instance. Isaac loves Esau. Esau's a hunter. He is a manly man. He brings his dad all the things he hunts. His dad eats really well. I think he really admires Esau's strength. And that is his favorite child. But Jacob was Rebecca's favorite child because she had a vision whenever she was pregnant with the twins and was told that the youngest would inherit. And so she liked Jacob's quietness and his gentleness and his thoughtfulness. So you have these two children. One is treated like a golden child by one parent and the other scapegoated by that parent and vice versa with the other parent. These two kids, Jacob and Esau, had no option but to be rivals. They were constantly at war with each other. And you see this really play out whenever Isaac goes blind and Jacob comes in and tricks him at Rebecca's request. He goes in and tricks Isaac for the blessing. And he puts, you know, the sheepskin on his arms because Esau was really hairy and he brings him meat and Isaac feels his arms, thinks it's Esau, gives him the blessing. And let's talk about what that blessing is. That blessing was that he was going to be the master of all of his brothers and all of his brothers would be his servants. Like, let's talk about not healthy dynamics. And granted, this was a long time ago. And I understand that things worked very, very differently for survival. There were very different rules of society because society was much harsher. And when we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah, you're going to have different rules when the basic needs are not being met. 
when people are starving and they don't have shelter and, you know, everything feels really scary, they're still in survival mode when this story is being written. They're still tribal people. It makes sense that we would have these kinds of family dynamics because we have no self-awareness whatsoever at this point. We're down in that base part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We are worried about food, water, shelter, reproduction, maybe some love and belonging. That's where we're at. Okay. We're worried about security and we're worried about surviving until the next day. So it makes sense that you have this like really strange, like alpha brother kind of thing going on in order to maybe ensure their survival of the rest of the tribe. But it doesn't make sense for today and it's not healthy for today. And so we still have this dynamic though, where Esau comes in later, he's carrying a steak of venison or whatever it is. And he asks for his blessing. And Isaac says, I already gave your blessing to your brother, Jacob. I didn't realize he tricked me. And he says, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And he weeps and he wails. And Isaac says, I already made him your master. You're his servant. And that idea that only one child can be the golden child and have their parents' blessing is at the heart of this like sibling rivalry and this competition and everybody vying to get on their parents' good side, to get the love, to get the acceptance. That is the prize in today's modern family. And the modern family that's reading the Bible, having these stories held up as the ideal for today is where we get some big problems. And it's where we start seeing people have really hard feelings towards their siblings, or when that's not safe, they internalize any resentment that they might have in on themselves because that's the only safe place to put it. And that's where you start seeing a lot of that self-loathing. Know that this idea of a golden child and a scapegoat and this triangulation is often repeated throughout at least the Old Testament, but we still see it today with that whole dynamic of Christ being the person that we worship. He's the master. He's the person that we're giving all of the praise and accolades to. And then Satan is who we blame for all of the bad things in the world and all of our bad decisions. So we have this playing out even in modern Christianity, but it is reinforced over and over again in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon and in whatever holy books that you're reading. My guess is that you have dynamics like this that you were taught where there was a good child that was favored and got all the blessings and a bad child or children like Joseph with the technicolor dream coat. So Joseph with the multicolor coat, he was the favorite son of Jacob. If you have a favorite son, there's a problem. If you have a favorite child, there's a problem. We've got some golden child syndrome going on. So Joseph was the favorite because he was Rachel's first son. Remember, Leah had all of these sons and then the handmaids had sons and Rachel was infertile. And then she gives birth to Joseph and Jacob in his old age 
is so excited. He showers Joseph with all kinds of protection and love and coats, apparently. And the rest of these brothers, 11 brothers, really don't like how different the treatment is between those 11 brothers and Joseph. And you start seeing some of that golden child syndrome coming out in Joseph, where he starts bragging about having dreams of not only his brothers bowing down to him, but also his parents bowing down to him. And he sees himself as better than his brothers and even his parents. And so it creates a lot of chaos and a lot of resentment in the brothers. Esau with Jacob, Esau starts to plot to kill Jacob after his blessing is denied. And, you know, after Jacob is given this golden child place where he gets all of the goodies, all of the love, all of the property, all of the power that doesn't sit well for Esau who has held the golden child role with Isaac. And so he plots to kill Jacob and you see the same thing play out for Joseph, Joseph, because he has this sort of arrogant air about him and because he is favored. And my guess like babied and protected because he's the only child Rachel's been able to bear and she's old in age now the brothers plot to kill him first and then end up selling him into slavery because they're so tired of the inequality. And we see a lot of that happen in today as well, where the golden child is often at odds with the scapegoat. And sometimes those relationships don't heal even into adulthood because sometimes what happens is the golden child is either never held responsible for things that they might do that hurt the scapegoated child or because they feel like they're so much better. And because the parent um, treats them like they can do no wrong, it just creates a wedge in between the scapegoated child and the golden child to a point where they can't connect like siblings normally would, where siblings normally might be able to sit down and be like, so about our childhood, like, let's talk about some of this and figure it out. And instead of feeling like you have someone in your corner, you feel really separated and alone. This can be something that causes a lot of rifts in between siblings. And when you have a narcissistic parent, at least it's done on purpose, whether subconsciously or consciously, it is by design, because if you can make all of the siblings at odds with one another, then you don't ever have to worry about being replaced. You will always be the center of your child's attention. You don't have to worry about them becoming friends and maybe leaving you out and you being abandoned. Parents from that abandonment place, from those wounds of possibly being abandoned, sometimes pit their children against one another in a bid to not be abandoned. And so often it is not conscious. Most of the time it is subconscious. Like I said, unless your parent has sociopathic tendencies, any harm that they caused you was subconscious and they didn't realize that they were operating from their wound. They may not have realized they had a wound in the first place and that they were passing on some of that to you. All right. Before we wrap up, let's just talk about some of the traits of the golden child so it can be easier to kind of identify, am I the golden child or not? Because sometimes it is difficult to tell, especially in high demand religious families where 
we often try to cut off arrogance and we try to cut off like vanity, it can be a little more difficult to identify the golden child because we don't typically get somebody that's just a very grandiose, arrogant braggart. I mean, it does happen, but not as often. We tend to produce more covert narcissists in high demand religion. So let's talk about traits of the golden child. So you may have been the golden child if, first of all, everyone in your family really did think that you were the favorite or you did feel like you got a lot of favor from your parents when maybe some of your siblings didn't. Um, You often have an overwhelming need to please, particularly your parents, and any authority. So you are very conscious of authority. You're often a rule keeper. If you're like... If your coworker now in adulthood, if your coworker were to say something to you, you it may or may not bother you, but if your boss said something to you, it would feel devastating because you have a need to please authority. You're often an overachiever. You're very competitive. You strive to win or be the best. And as a child, you really strove to outperform your peers but maybe specifically you may have striven to outperform your siblings. So you were constantly trying to be better than others at whatever it was that you were good at. You may feel like you have to do or be something great, like extraordinary in order to be worthy of love and belonging. So living a normal life doesn't feel like a viable option for you. You feel like you have to like really make a mark on the world in order to earn love and belonging. You may have a fear of failure. You may still be abiding by your parents' rules, even in adulthood. If you are, don't worry. You're in good company. Remember, I'm right there with you. This is my role. So if you're feeling triggered, if you're feeling defensive, breathe into it. Give yourself a chance to take care of yourself. It can be hard to hear some of these things But no, this doesn't mean you're a bad person. You're not doomed. You're not broken. You're not bad. These are just things to know about yourself and get curious with. The more awareness we have, the more power we have in our lives. So if you're still abiding by your parents' rules in adulthood, chances are there may be some golden child stuff going on there. You're likely a perfectionist. Because remember, mistakes are not okay. That's perfectionism. And if you're struggling with perfectionism, go back to my podcast episode on perfectionism. It's really going to help you understand how you might use perfectionism as protection, as well as as a numbing tool whenever you have big feelings. You are often sensitive to criticism, even little criticisms. You might even be feeling sensitive right now as I'm talking about these traits. You might feel called out. You might feel upset with me. You might be angry. That's okay. Just know that that is something to get curious about. That's all it is. This is just information about what's going on inside of you. Again, you are not a bad person if you have some of these things going on inside of you. These are just wounds. They're wounds to get curious about. You were likely sociable and extroverted. Extroverted, ambiverted, You may have had some introverted side to you, but you were sociable. You were concerned with other people. You got along with other people because remember, that's the mask. Like we're good. We're doing good here. And it's hard to do that whenever we're constantly isolated. So you are out in the world. You often have productive hobbies and you have a hard time resting or playing. 
if you're doing a hobby, there is a purpose. You often overschedule or overextend yourself because you've been raised to see yourself as borderline superhuman. If you've ever had a to-do list that has a hundred items on it, like I have, this might be something, you know, to get curious about. You often feel like an imposter. And this is a big one for golden children because on the outside, we're so busy trying to make the family look good, make our parents look good, make us look good. And inside, we're aware of our weaknesses. We're aware of the places where we're having to fake it. We're aware of our failures. And we often feel like an imposter. We often feel like we're given maybe more accolades and recognition than we feel like we're worthy of. I think what happens is sometimes we look at our siblings and we're like, I'm not more special than them, but I get treated more special than them. And that doesn't make sense to me. And I think that creates some cognitive dissonance. So, and this can happen in high demand religion too, where we're taught that we're special and different and chosen by God. We're the golden children of God. And we look around and we see other people doing amazing things, but they're not part of our organization. And we can get that cognitive dissonance of I'm special and I'm chosen, but that person I think is doing better or living my values better than I am. And it creates the sense of imposter syndrome. We also struggle with a sense of identity often because we've adopted our parents' identity as our own or at least our parents' like ideal identity as our own. So it might not be our parents' actual identity, but our parents often create a pseudo-identity, an identity that they wish they were, and they put that on us. And so because we're trying so hard to please them and become that person, we're fitting ourselves into this box of who they consider the ideal human, that we never really actually get to explore who we actually are what we actually like, what we actually want. And again, this can come from family or it can come from high demand religion, which operates very much with this dynamic. Now, these are going to be some of the hard ones to hear. So buckle up, breathe through it, pause as much as you need to. If you're triggered, that's okay. You're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to feel whatever you feel and do know this. I'm being a little bit harder on us golden children because while scapegoats are very often very aware of what weaknesses they have inside of them, often golden children, we offload on other people and we distract. Do know that if some of the things I'm about to talk about trigger you, breathe through it and do self-care, but then give yourself some time to get curious with it, okay? And remind yourself, this doesn't mean I'm a bad person. This just means I have wounds to work on. There are just places in my life where maybe I'm not showing up the way I want to show up, okay? You're not a bad person. You're a human. That means you're messy. You're both light and darkness. You are, you're all of it. You're light and darkness. You're strength and weakness. You're all of it. All right, here we go. Of all the different roles the golden children are the most likely to take on narcissistic traits of their parental figures as a way to get their needs met. So we begin to act like the narcissist. We adopt 
the narcissist way of doing things because it bonds us, it trauma bonds us with them, makes it more likely for us to get love and attention by doing things their way. This means that sometimes we may have harmed our siblings or other people. We may have jumped in to the shaming or the blaming that the narcissist was engaging in with the scapegoat. We may have engaged in that as well and affirmed what the narcissist was saying as a self-protective mechanism. And so that's something that we have to sit with and maybe even be willing to have a conversation with our siblings or other people that we love about. This is going to be one of those places where we hold ourselves with kindness, recognizing we did the best we could with what we had as children, and that if we took on narcissistic traits, it was for survival. But that then doesn't make it where we just get to offload the blame on our parents for any harm that we inflicted. And it doesn't mean that we get to avoid accountability. So we hold ourselves with kindness and compassion. And then we also allow ourselves to be accountable for any harm we might have caused. So if you're noticing, I think I might have been the golden child, sit with, were there times when maybe I engaged in some of those scapegoating things with the narcissistic parent against some of my siblings? Are there conversations I need to have? Are there things I might need to apologize for? This is going to be a big thing. And it's going to actually create some healing between you and your siblings. And some of your siblings might be willing to engage and some might not because it hurts too much. And that all gets to be okay. But we can open up and say, look, I'm becoming aware of some new things in my life and I'm healing. And I recognize that I may have engaged in some patterns that hurt you when we were children. And I tried to protect myself. And I tried to deal with the chaos in our home the best I could. And I'm open to have a conversation, to be accountable, to validate you, and all of that. I'm here for us to figure this out if that feels like something you would like to do. And I know in the past you might not have felt safe with me, but I want you to know I'm trying really hard to change that dynamic. I would love to be a safe place for you. And you just keep that door open for as long as it needs to be open until your sibling feels safe enough to walk through, if they ever feel safe enough to walk through. Sometimes scapegoating wounds are so deep, can be really difficult for our siblings to feel safe with anyone in the family because the trauma is so tremendous. All right. The other thing we need to be aware of as the golden child is that because we were treated like we were extraordinarily talented or somehow superhuman, when we don't get praise, recognition, promotion, like at work or in church or success easily, sometimes we become despondent, angry, detached, or we might self-sabotage our success that we previously achieved. So when things get too hard, we might detach or we might self-sabotage or tell ourselves we didn't really care in the first place, 
or we might detach from relationships where we don't feel like we're being fond over enough. We can do all of this because we feel really insecure in that place because we've been trained to believe that praise and recognition and promotion and success should come really easily, sometimes without us even having to try. So just know that's a possibility. And again, get curious with it. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, but if you notice yourself self-sabotaging a lot, whenever you're trying to do things, if you notice yourself sabotaging relationships or, you know, your business or whatever, get curious with it. What is going on? Do I feel like this should be easier than it is? And what do I think it means about me that I'm not getting promoted as fast as I think I should? Or that people aren't laying on the praise as thick as I think it should. What does that mean? Give yourself some time to reflect. And then the last thing I want to talk about is those of us who are golden children, sometimes we're trained to look at the world in a transactional way. That means we might not see people as people completely. We might see people as resources to be exploited. That can come up in our relationships. That can come up in business. That can come up in our family. It it can even come up with our children. Do we look at the people in our lives as there to serve us? to make us wealthy, to make us feel good about ourselves, to make us feel like we belong, to make us feel less afraid that we'll be abandoned? Are we looking at people as resources to be exploited for our own benefit? Or are we looking at people as individuals to get to know fully and to give and take with? Just something to get curious about. All right. Now that we've talked about the difficult stuff, let's talk about how we start moving forward. How do we heal this golden child syndrome? How do we move forward? How do we keep the good stuff, some of that drive that we often have? How do we keep that ability to like take risks and move forward? And there's a lot of good stuff that can come with being the golden child. But as we talked about, there are a lot of drawbacks that are likely really becoming uncomfortable now that we're adults, especially if you're in middle life, like it can really feel restrictive to be the golden child when you're in midlife. So how do we begin healing that? First of all, we drop the binary. Stop seeing yourself as all good or all bad. Give yourself permission to be a complex person with both beautiful and not so beautiful traits. This is going to give you some wiggle room to actually see yourself and accept yourself. If it doesn't have to be all or one, then whatever comes up gets to be okay. When we recognize that all humans have both light and dark, strength and weakness, it can help us begin to create a space where we're finally allowed to just be without worrying about carrying around the perfection mask all of the time. What we're trying to do is give ourselves room to put down the 20-ton shield, as Brene Brown calls it, to put off the mask and just see who we are without it. What are some of the things that I really admire about myself? And what are some of the things that are some of my weaknesses? And recognizing we're acceptable with all of it. 
So if you notice you do have some narcissistic traits or you have caused some harm or that you do sometimes view people transactionally, notice that, but also notice the good in you. What are the benefits of being you? What are some of the beautiful things you bring to the world? It's okay to be all of that right now. You are worthy and acceptable right now, just as you are. And if there are parts of that that really make you uncomfortable or feel like that it's against your values, get curious with it and start working on it. It's okay. The next thing is inner child work. I cannot recommend inner child work enough when we are dealing with childhood wounds. If you were the golden child, your inner child was never allowed to grow and develop into who they were meant to be. Instead, you were molded and shaped into someone else's ideal version of themselves. So give yourself permission to look at a photo of yourself as a child and tell yourself the things you wish an adult had said to you at that time in your life. Adopt your inner child and give them the things you wish your parents had been able to give you so that you could develop into a healthy adult. Allow yourself to remember what it was like to be three or eight or 12 or whatever age it is you are in the photograph. What were some of the pains you had? How did your parents react when that happened? And what do you wish they would have said or done? And then say or do those things for yourself now. Now, this has been a lot of heavy work. And so I'm going to give you a a little fun assignment because this has been really helpful for me is just recognizing these patterns and how they play out like in real life. So this week, what I'd like you to do is as you're watching your favorite shows, as you're watching your favorite movies, as you're reading books, look for this dynamic. Look for the golden child scapegoat dynamic. And just notice how do they act? How do they interact with one another? And do you recognize any of those patterns? So right now, Kevin and I are watching Big Little Lies, and there is all kinds of dysfunction going on in this show. And it has been so fun to try to figure out like what roles everybody plays, what their childhood wounds might be, where the stuff might come from, how it's interacting with one another. It is so fun. So this week, I'm challenging you to do the same thing. Watch your shows, watch your movies, just go about normal life. But as you're watching, see if you can recognize the roles that show up in each of the shows. And then head on over to the Emancipate Yourself Facebook group and tell us what you discovered. Create your own post. Talk about what you are watching. It's going to give us some recommendations for great shows and books and movies to watch too. But head on over there, start a post. Talk about what you discovered, what roles you noticed were the scapegoat, the golden child, the hero, the mascot, the surrogate parent, or the narcissist, or the enabler. Who were those roles? Head on over there because the more we start to notice these just in our daily life, the more awareness we're going to have in our own life. And again, the more awareness we have, the more power we have in our life. Awareness is always the first step to healing. So I can't wait to see what you discover. And I can't wait to hear what shows and movies and books you're watching and consuming right now, because you know I'm always looking for those things myself. So thank you for joining me this week. Remember, if you are loving this podcast, head over 
to emancipateyourmind.org and donate. Your donations allow me to spend more of my time podcasting, bringing you these materials, studying and researching, spending time talking with all of you, and less time doing other things that allow me to support my family so that I can really focus here, bringing you material and helping you become aware and you know, begin to heal some of these patterns that are in your life so that you can live the life that feels best for you. I can't wait to hear what you have to say, and I will see you next Sunday.